Farms Food Future, a podcast that's good for you, good for the planet and good for farmers. Brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development, I'm Brian Thompson. In co-presenting this edition, I'm Michelle Tang. In podcast 44, we're turning the spotlight on the Near East and North Africa to look at one of the major issues facing the region, water scarcity. With the UN's climate summit later this year, COP28, taking place in the United Arab Emirates, water scarcity and food security are top of the climate agenda. In the podcast, we'll be talking to IFAD's regional lead, Dina Seller. After that, we'll be visiting projects dealing directly with the issues around water scarcity and food security in Egypt and also in Jordan. Next in episode 44, are you curious about how we can promote biodiversity while producing affordable, high-quality protein feed and organic fertilizers? Well, you're in luck. In this month's EFAD podcast, Michelle McKenna Mbwimbi speaks with Grace Kierwimpa, the CEO of AgroDiverse in Kenya, who will take us on a fascinating journey through the world of insect farming. Are you passionate about the intersection of medicine, food, and nutrition? Well, Dr. Colin Zhu is a chef and health coach, as well as a medical doctor. He'll be telling our reporter, Noah Bonner, all about what we can do better to live better. And Noah will be back to tell us all about the work on hybrid potato crops at Dutch company Salinta. Then to wrap things up, we hear from the president of Italy's B-League football, Mauro Balata. He will be going into why they are supporting EFAT and rural development. Don't forget, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch with us at podcasts at efat.org. You can also subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform, and please rate us. You're listening to Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson. This year's UN Climate Summit UNFCCC COP28 will take place in the United Arab Emirates. This is a country that, while resource-rich in petrochemicals, is resource-poor in terms of water. Across the region, water scarcity combined with other factors are among the key challenges hampering rural development in the Near East and North Africa. Climate shocks, together with economic and political disturbances, have resulted in some of the toughest and most enduring poverty challenges in the world. Joining us is IFAD's director for the Near East, North Africa, Europe and Central Asia. Dina Saleh, welcome to Farms Food Future. Thanks, uh, Brian. How serious is the situation facing the Arab states with regard to water scarcity? So, of course, the Arab states are among the most water scarce in the world, with nearly 362 million people in the Arab region living in conditions that range from water scarcity to absolute scarcity. Currently, 18 out of 22 Arab states are below the renewable water resources scarcity annual threshold of 1,000 cubic meters per capita, and 13 below the absolute water scarcity threshold of 500 cubic meters per capita per year. 
So as you can see, the, the fact that the agriculture sector in the Near East North Africa is functioning amid the water scarcity issue, and that is being aggravated by increasing populations and climate change, means that farmers have to develop and adapt coping mechanisms. And we have seen that farmers changing their irrigation techniques in order to cope with intermittent water supply. There are farmers who have managed to group themselves to the extent possible, uh, managing the process of taking turns in irrigation. There are farmers who have managed also to finance together a water storage pond or water harvesting, something that we call the hafir in the uh, Arab region for rainwater harvesting and to support supplementary irrigation. Some pastoralists as well have also invested in these hafirs in order to provide their animals with drinking water. Some have also adapted by changing the seeds and buying drought-tolerant varieties that require less water. Others have changed their whole cropping patterns to move away from water-consuming crops into crops that use less water with similar or higher market value. So the list of smart practices goes on, and it's our role to capture these practices and then share them more broadly across the region. And the most important thing that we can learn is that we need to adapt and we, as we cannot change. And that knowledge and, um, uh, and awareness makes a huge difference to how our farmers in this region can actually um, you know, cope with the, with the realities. I noticed that even in the hadith, the, the sayings of the prophet in Islam, we, we, we find direct recommendations there for, for better farming practices when faced with water scarcity. Is that the case? Well, absolutely, actually. Um, and as you know, all religions have one way or another given recommendations on wisely dealing with nature and conserving all resources. So, as you said, the Quran has highlighted the significance of water in many verses. So let me just quote a few. One verse that says, And we created from water every living thing. Will they not then believe? Another quote. It is Allah who created the heavens and the earth and sends down rain from the sky, causing fruits to grow as a provision for you. He has subjected the ships for your service, sailing through the sea by his command, and has subjected the rivers for you. A third one, Prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, said, Do not waste water, even if you are on a running river. So this, as you can see, comes from the Quran, and of course, the Hadiths are coming from the Quran. But just one quick also addition to all of this, um, Brian, is that even in ancient civilizations, humans created water mills to grind wheat, developed drainage, built canals, aqueducts, and pipes for water, you know, conservation, but also for water use, and also for aesthetic purposes. You know, all these beautiful fountains that we find in ancient civilizations. So, so as you can see, this, this goes back to religion, goes back also to ancient civilization. Thanks, Dina. If you can stay on the line, we're now going to hear from some projects in Jordan and Egypt to find out more about the water situation in those particular areas. But we'll be back with you, Dina, a little bit later. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Michelle Tang, and I'm joined by Brian Thompson. Now moving on to Egypt. 
Harim Ismail is the monitoring and evaluation manager of the Sustainable Agriculture Investments and Livelihoods Project, or SAIL. Our reporter Noor Bona spoke with him to understand how local communities have benefited from the project. This includes irrigation development schemes set up to alleviate the problems of climate change and water scarcity. Noor first asked what sort of innovative measures are being put in place to alleviate these issues. Actually, uh, as you know, we have uh, uh, agreement with GIF uh, component. It's funded by GIF and we have a lot of activities uh, funding by GIF to overcome about this uh, issues in different areas. Uh, we have uh, activities regarding innovative technology like aquaponic and hydroponic to overcome the soil uh, soil problems and the shortage of water. And sometimes we we actually uh, sign a contract with agriculture research center uh, to implement an early warning system. And now we uh, send the messages uh, to beneficiaries about uh, forecasting the weather and how to come uh, overcome the problems regarding the weather in these areas. And also we uh, implement uh, a lot of training courses in how to face uh, or overcome uh, the issues that related to uh, climate change, uh, how to uh, deal with these activities, how to overcome about the 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 the, the sun, the the rays and so on. We implement a lot of activities about this. And actually, in Middle Egypt, in Middle Egypt now, we already launched about, uh, we already implement now, we started to implement uh, aggregation development work is using uh, solar panel, solar panel and using a modern irrigation system uh, to overcome uh, the lacking of shortage of water. Then, how have local communities benefited so far? Uh, the local communities benefited uh, so far. As I told you, we already implemented a, a lot of uh, irrigation development projects and cell project working areas. And the, yeah, as uh, for example, in in uh, in Kafr Sheikh in Motoba Zone, we uh, rehabilitate uh, around thirty six thousand uh, meters. Uh, in mescalining. The result of this rehabilitation is they reached the water to the end of branches. And now a lot of land is that uh, was not cultivated before. Now it's cultivated with the new crops. And sometimes we, uh, and, uh, and also now, they cultivate a new crops and the cash crops in these areas. And uh, in Middle Egypt also, I said, we... Uh, we uh, implement uh, uh, irrigation development works in, in West Samalut in Bani Swift, uh, Governorate. We implement a new irrigation, irrigation development using a solar panel and to the modifying the irrigation system from flood irrigation to modern irrigation system. We, we have a different partnership with a different agency. As For example, we signed a contract with FEO to implement a power 172 farmer field schools uh, related to uh, climate resilience. And they provide the beneficiaries with the information about how to overcome the climate change issues and, and so on with the FAO. The FAO implemented through our uh, protocol with the FAO 
uh, implemented about 120 farmer field schools. And they provo provide all beneficiaries in this farmer field school with all information about uh, climate resilience and about uh, activities related to climate change. In addition to, uh, to our training courses in, in, uh, in cell project working area also. Thank you. And finally, what do you expect for the future? Yes, we expect for the future uh, a lot of activities re related to uh, early warning system. We need to uh, uh, to amend, amend the contract with Agriculture Research Center uh, about early warning system to put other activities related to uh, created a websites for uh, for climate change. Uh, can or we can do a create or uh, a play for beneficiaries to learn them how to uh, to uh, deal with uh, how to overcome about the climate change act, uh, uh, problems, and we can increase the training courses, and we can amend amend the protocol or the contract with the FOO to do the same uh, things, but, but in the different zones, different villages. So we have a lot of uh, activities can, we can share with you about the future. That was Karim Ismail talking to our reporter Noor Bonner. Coming up, we head over to Jordan. This is Farms Food Future with me, Michelle Tang and Brian Thompson. Now we go to Jordan and the Rural Economic Growth and Employment Project. Working in the governorates of Ajlun, Jarash, Balka, Madaba and Mafrek, Recep targets rural households below the poverty line and those at risk of falling into poverty. I asked the project director, Zaid Ansour, what are the major impacts relating to climate change? In the Jordan, uh, the Rajab is working uh, on that in the rural community, and the the most uh, issues it's decrease in uh, rainfall amount uh, and changes in its patterns, uh, increased temperatures and extreme weather like uh, prolonged uh, heat waves and flash floods. Uh, event might increase the risk of the poor yields and uh, reduce crop uh, profitability. Uh, and uh, the fluctuation in the rainfall will worsen the water situation in Jordan, uh, resulting in, uh, in decreasing the surface water amounts available and uh, shifting toward uh, the groundwater, which is already uh, being extensively used. And also the flash floods will, uh, will cause soil erosion and uh, accelerating land uh, uh, degradation, uh, heat waves will increase the demand for water, uh, for irrigation, and uh, Jordan has very limited uh, resources. Uh, all of the I mentioned above, uh, it's influence, uh, direct influence in the agriculture operations and uh, availability, availability of the water sources, uh, uh, which resulted uh, to the decrease the productivities and the quality for crops increasing the uh, employment and loss the job uh, uh, and also affecting in the uh, which will be both uh, a threat for food security in the Jordan in the general what sort of innovative measures are you or have you 
put in place to alleviate these issues? Yes, we are taking the, a lot of the innovative, innovative measures through the, the Rajab project activities, uh, different activities uh, implemented by the project uh, through the capacity building and uh, provide the technical and uh, financial support. Uh, in addition to that, uh, in the project, we have a piloted promoting drought resistance uh, varieties of the vegetables crops targeted by the project among the beneficiary farmers and put in the place grant funds for water harvesting uh, ponds and the installation of the hydroponic systems. Also, a grant for the rehabilitation of the degraded irrigation networks uh, to increase the water use efficiency in the smallholders' farms. Uh, in addition to that, the training uh, farmers on the climate smart agriculture through farmer field schools, uh, uh, which are implemented by project, uh, and introducing the easy, uh, applicably, uh, applicable uh, techniques into the rain fed for supplemental, uh, supplemental uh, irrigation that uh, does not need uh, a lot of the maintenance and it's very uh, efficient and uh, also as the uh, as a as responsibility of the all, all uh, governmental uh, governmental uh, entities to focus on reducing the greenhouse cases uh, emissions uh, the project encouraged farmers to use the solar energy their farms rather than depending on grid uh, electricity. How have the local communities you are working with, how have they benefited so far? Yes, uh, there is a lot of the benefits and uh, effects and impacts uh, through this approach uh, taken by the, the Rajab project. Uh, uh, as the farmers are uh, are trained uh, on climate uh, mitigation and the climate resilience practices and uh, encouraging farmers to abdo- uh, adopt the drip irrigation in their fund uh, in their funded projects uh, uh, and also uh, encouraging farmers to depend on the uh, surface uh, surface water and uh, non conventional uh, water sources rather than using the, the groundwater in the project funded by uh, grants Thanks to Zaid Ansour, and you can find out more about the Redjit project and work in the same region by going to ifad.org. Coming up later in Podcast 44, we rejoin Dina Saleh for more on the issues facing the North Africa and Near East region. Plus, we have some sports news with Italy's Football B-League. Make sure you also check out our other podcasts. In Podcast 41, we celebrated International Women's Day. Then in Podcast 42, we talked innovations in agriculture. And in Podcast 43, we spoke to the boss at the UN's Convention on Biological Diversity with a special report on the Duchy of Cornwall's eco-credentials in the UK. And next month, we'll be talking small island developing states and some of the issues they're facing due to climate change. Now, though, back to Dina Saleh. This is Farms Food Future with me, Brian Thompson, and Michelle Tang. As promised, continuing our focus on water scarcity and water management in the Near East and North Africa, we're going to head back to chat with IFAD's director for the region, Dina Saleh. 
Thanks for staying with us, Dina. What are some of the innovative practices that you are now recommending with IFAD projects? So I think innovation in the water sector can be divided into four areas. Innovations in techniques of using water resources, innovations in the management of water resources, innovations in financing and technological innovations. So when I say innovations in techniques of using water resources, modern irrigation techniques like drip, drip sprinklers, subsurface irrigation are widespread already and national policies are currently promoting them. However, the region needs to promote and manage the risks related to some of these existing practices related to the non-conventional uh, water resources. For example, we need to upscale the use of treated wastewater in agriculture at a larger scale and the associated legislations and awareness raising that is needed. At the household level, gray wa water could be an option um, to irrigate women-led kitchen gardens that could enhance, of course, the family nutrition. Secondly, when we say innovations in management of water resources, it's common that water users associations are weak or sometimes lacking financial or technical resources to properly manage and, uh, their, you know, these water resources. So the use of digital keys uh, tools could be key actually in linking water users associations to advisory services and to facilitating the management of financial as well as operational matters. This also could be strengthened uh, by legal frameworks that say, uh, serve the purpose. When I say innovations, the third point in innovations in financing. Well, in order to ensure that innovations or even efficient techniques are scaled up, we need to ensure that we have the financial mechanisms to serve that purpose. In many countries in our region, regular loans are not the preference for farmers. And we need to be innovative in terms of developing good financial products that would incentivize the switch from traditional practices to more conservative water practices. The, th the last point on technological innovations, some countries, uh, especially the Gulf countries, have been pioneering research and piloting new sophisticated technologies, such as cloud seeding, artificial rainmaking, and harvesting water from air. These are obviously expensive, technologies and are still being tested, but it's important to keep experimenting them as they have the potential to revolutionize agriculture in our region. Once these technologies become mature, mechanisms to introduce them then to middle income countries and also to least developing countries can be discussed. In general, Dina, are things getting worse as climate change intensifies? Well, definitely, actually, um, you know, as I mentioned about the water scarcity thresholds before and how we 18 out of 22 countries in the region are, are considered to be, um, you know, below the renewable water resources. Due to climate change, precipitation trends are largely decreasing across the Arab region. And until the end of the century, um, you know, this has been happening. Although some limited areas, such as the southeastern part of the Arabian Peninsula, and some areas of the Sahel are expected to um, exhibit an increase in the intensity and volume of precipitation. So, and then as we go, as for the Nile and the rivers, you know, the River Nile, the Tigris and the Euphrates, which are really the large water bodies of the region, um, you know, we're seeing different scenarios here which show different results. 
and there are uncertainties regarding the increase or decrease in the precipitation in the headwaters. And, and one key impact of climate change, which will affect the Arab region as a whole, is a more erratic precipitation uh, regime that will simultaneously feature uh, longer, drier seasons and more torrential rains. So this will seriously endanger agile soil resources and underground water replenishment. And as you can see, of course, directly impacting the agriculture sector, which is the highest consumer of water and thus impacts livelihoods, food security across the region, and which is already negatively affected by the current Russian-Ukraine war. Thanks to Dina Saleh, and you can find out more about IFAD's work on water issues within the Near East and North Africa at ifad.org. Coming up, news on insect farming in Kenya. You're listening to Podcast 44 of Farms, Food, Future, with me, Michelle Tang, and Brian Thompson. Time now for our report from Michelle McKenna Mwimbi and her interview with Grace Kierwimpa, CEO of AgroDivers Limited in Kenya. She'll be taking us on a fascinating journey through the world of insect farming. Yes, you heard right. That's insects. Grace will share how her company uses natural farming methods to farm insects and how they benefit animal rearing businesses through the use of indigenous microorganisms. But that's not all. Grace will also disclose the secret to producing organic fertilizers and pesticides from the secretions left behind by earthworms, insects, and black soldier fly larvae. This is a conversation on biodiversity that you won't want to miss. Michelle McCain and Mwimbi got the scoop on AgroDiverse with its CEO, Grace Kierwimpa. Our company, we basically deal in insect farming, earthworm farming, and snail farming. And this is basically for production of high quality but affordable animal protein feed, organic fertilizers, and pesticides. So how we come in, just like our name, AgroBiodiverse Kenya Limited, we basically, yeah, we focus on organic farming, uh, which is one of the ways we promote uh, biodiversity. Someone uses inorganic pesticides and inorganic fertilizers, the, it leads to declines in biodiversity. For example, some of those inorganic pesticides, they lead to death of soil microorganisms. They kill beneficial insects. Uh, such as bees. So for us, what we do, we make sure that uh, all our operations are completely uh, natural and organic. We don't use any inorganic chemicals. And then we also produce uh, indigenous microorganisms, uh, and these uh, include uh, beneficial bacteria, beneficial fungi, and, and many other microorganisms. And this hope uh, to improve the soil fertility and uh, we use them for many other functions as regards to natural farming. Thank you for that explanation, Grace. So how does your company's use of natural and organic products benefit farmers in terms of their animal rearing businesses? One of, uh, of our products is actually 
uh, indigenous microorganisms. So these ones, we, they are like beneficial microbes and specifically we produce some for, for animals. Uh, in fact, we, uh, we produce some which are taken by, let me say, pigs, even for chicken. And what these do, they improve the digestion uh, of, of uh, they improve digestion so this, and feed conversion ratio. So the animals are able to eat less and gain more. Then also they boost the immunity of animals. So you find your animals, uh, they don't get sick that often. So uh, some of them, uh, some of these microbes actually act as antibiotics. You know, like these antibiotics, which are more healthy than the synthetic ones. So uh, on top of promoting like the growth, some of them also promote growth uh, for the animals. So you find your animals are growing faster uh, compared to when you're not giving them these beneficial microbes. The indigenous microorganisms actually, they reduce bad odors in animal pens. So uh, if you have ever heard maybe of no smell piggery, even whether it is cattle, uh, you apply on the cattle, how pens and so on, and then there's no smell. So basically it means even farmers who are in urban areas, they can actually do farming because there won't be any smell from, uh, from their units. That is quite interesting to hear. And can you describe the process of producing organic fertilizers and pesticides from the secretions and remains of insects, earthworms, and snails? First of all, from the earthworms, we get the vermicompost. So we harvest vermicompost every, every month. And this vermicompost, it is a remain. For example, vegetable growing, they can use this vermicompost direct for potting and for growing their vegetables without uh, the fertilizer actually burning their plants or causing any harmful effects. Then for, for the pesticides, we extract the lime from the snails, and then we also get uh, vermiliquid from the earthworms. Vermiliquid is basically a liquid, a liquid excretion. It is naturally secreted by the earthworms. So we get uh, those excretions and then add in a bit of natural plant extract, like plant juices, and then we are able to actually come up with uh, an organic pesticide. Thanks to Michelle McCain and Wimby for that report. And you can find out more on Facebook. Just look up AgroDiverse Limited Kenya. Also, if we've piqued your interest regarding insect farming, check out our interview with Brian Noyoto from Ento Insect Solutions in episode 43. Coming up, he's a doctor, he's a chef, and he's a nutritionist. Let's find out how we can eat ourselves healthier with organic farming. This is Farms Food Future. Colin Chu is a board-certified doctor. He's passionate about the intersection of medicine, food, and nutrition. After qualifying at medical school, Dr. Chu trained as a chef and a health coach at the Natural 
Gomade Institute for Health and Culinary Arts. To share his unique blend of medical knowledge with a wider audience, Dr. Shu launched The Chef Doc in 2017, an online wellness and lifestyle education platform. Our reporter, Noah Bonner, spoke to him to understand how important organic produce is. She asked what role chefs play in making food systems more sustainable and just. Um, I think uh, chefs have a huge role. Um, they are in my opinion, they're kind of like the magician uh, that play in the middle where, you know, food is sourced from our agricultural lands and then, you know, it arrives, whether, you know, it could be through a processing plant, it could be, you know, a factory, it could be, um, you know, a restaurant, right, or supply chain, Um Culinary, um, you know, the culinary system chefs, they play a role in terms of transforming the food into something that is, you know, palatable for, um, you know, our taste buds. Um, they are the magicians that kind of, you know, bring all the flavors um, of whole ingredients together um, from what Mother Nature has uh, intended it to. And, you know, in a way, it feeds our bodies, you know, um, and it helps uh, nourishes us. So chefs play a vital role um, in the culinary world, uh, whether it be a restaurant or a catering service or a hotel you know, chain, or it could just be a home cook or it could be a farm to table type of situation. So uh, they play, play a very vital role. Thank you. And about the second question. What inspired you to spread the word about cooking and health in this way? Um, and what inspired me was um, pretty much when I was going to school, I realized really quickly that uh, no matter who walked through our door, whether they complained of coughing or low back pain, um, they always had some sort of chronic lifestyle risk factor attached to them. So it could be uh, high blood pressure, diabetes, cancer, heart disease, um, overweight issues. And I realized really quickly um, at that time when I was at school that I wasn't prepared enough. School didn't prepare me enough for, you know, diet, food, nutrition, lifestyle types of educational curricula. And so from there, um, I had to make a lot of detours and take it upon myself to accumulate this knowledge and experience. And so from there, I went to culinary school, a plant-based health supportive culinary school, and then I got my certification in health coaching. Um, and, I, and from those two, uh, that built the foundation for me to create the Chef Doc, uh, which is a wellness and educational platform so I could reach as many people as possible. And how important is organic produce? Um, organic produce is very important. Um, I think with modern agriculture, um, <clears throat> we have, uh, through conventional modern agricultural practices, uh, we have depleted a lot of our nutritional value. Um, and an animal, yeah, I'm sorry, an apple today um, is not the same thing as an apple 40, 50 years ago. And, um, you know, through that, you know, a lot of conventional means in terms of adding herbicides, pesticides, uh, fungicides, you know, really, really play a detriment. Um, and, uh, you know, we don't really have, you know, all the good long term data um, in terms of how this will affect our health 
long term. So if we're able to practice in a way, and what I mean by that is more regenerative, more sustainable practices, um, we use less um, or, um, you know, less of these um, insecticides. Um, and then also I would add to that non-genetically modified, you know, um, ingredients and organisms to our produce, um, the healthier um, the produce is. Um, and also healthier the soil, and that produces healthier food for healthier people. So, um, so I say it's very important. Thank you very much. And what do you want to say to young people living in small-scale farms in developing countries? I would probably say to them um, is that you know it's very very important to continue to. Uh, you know, uh, to continue and, and work um, on the farms and at the small scale, um, you know, and when you're able, it depends on, you know, the amount of resources you're able to handle, um, how many farmhands, how many people are able to kind of, you know, help out. And I think it's not only for your own livelihood, but, you know, if you're able to produce at a scale where you're able to Um, you know, uh, produce for others, I think that would, you know, enhance the livelihood, um, especially um, where local economies are not that great um, in developing countries. So I would probably say to young people um, also, um, you know, you know, when you became, when you can become more entrepreneurial, that would also, you know, um, help as well. Um, and, uh, just making sure that, you know, you work together in collaborations and co-ops, um, you know, just, you know, making sure that you're not alone and you're not working in silos will help, um, you know, um, will help with the bigger picture. Thank you for sharing. And where did this passion for cooking come from? Um, the passion of cooking came from both my parents. Um, I was lucky, um, to have both my parents, uh, cook growing up. And so I became very familiar with going in and out of the kitchen. And I just have a love affair with food. And so um, it's very important to, you know, not just, you know, understand food um, and food that looks great and tastes good, but also understand that food means something different for, uh, you know, for all of us, right? Um, you know, it's emotional, it's cultural, it's political, it's financial, it's so many different layers, right? Um, but it's important to understand from my perspective, from a medical professional, that not only to nourish us, but also to inspire, you know, more change within ourselves and for others. You know, I think food can be in a very uh, beautiful conversational piece to inspire change. And because we're in a very critical decade um, in terms of global sustainability, planetary health and climate change. So food um, is one of the biggest barriers that we need to continue to talk about. Thanks to Noor for that report with Dr. Chu. To find out more about The Chef Doc, go to www.theshefdoc.app. Coming up, we are talking potatoes, but not as you know them. You're listening to Farms Food Future with Michelle Tang and Brian Thompson. Charles Miller is Director of Business Development at Solenta, a Dutch startup using hybrid potato breeding to help solve the global food crisis. Our reporter, Noor Bona, spoke with him to understand how science and technology can be used to improve farmers' livelihoods while providing nutrient-rich food sources to communities in need. 
Salinta's goal has been to provide farmers with a non-GMO potato that is nonetheless pest-resistant, reliable and sustainable. Nor asked, what's wrong with normal potatoes? Why do we need hybrid potatoes? Potatoes are the fourth largest staple crop in the world, but they still remain very threatened by diseases and pests. You know, a good example of that is something like late blight, which caused the Irish potato famine a few hundred years ago, and many people starved. And in order to adapt to our changing world, we need to start putting innovation to our food supply, in my opinion. And because potatoes are such an important part of the food supply globally, it's about time that we were able to hybridize them. And our company, Salenta, is the inventor of the hybrid potato. And we're able then, by using hybrid technology, to create new hybrids that have specific value for farmers all over the world. A, a good example might be resistance to late blight or resilience to climate change. And we can do this very quickly with hybrid breeding. Thank you. What makes hybrid potatoes an interesting option for small-scale farmers? Well, small-scale farmers create, they have very unique challenges compared to farmers in more developed parts. In many cases, small farmers are faced with inadequate and low-quality supply of starting material or seeds because they happen to be living in isolated spots. And without high-quality starting material, the farmers are already at a disadvantage. When you talk about hybrid potatoes, you also need to talk about true seeds. So seeds just like a tomato or maize or any other vegetable. Our hybrid technology, which is completely GMO-free, is delivered in a tiny seed, and those seeds can be shipped around the world whenever needed, even to the most remote locations. And this gives small-scale farmers a unique opportunity to benefit from innovation, and it also allows for a lower impact on uh, the entire environment. So, can hybrid potatoes help solve the global food crisis? What do you think? Well, look, the, the global food crisis occurs in many ways, in my opinion. It, it occurs simply supply, which comes from many starting points, but it also uh, comes from a, a nutrition point of view. Again, by being able to use hybrid breeding, we can target traits, whether those are traits to create more supply, so creating a variety that's more robust, say it, it uh, takes less water to make one kilo of potatoes than a normal potato, or even things like increasing some of the already available vitamins like B1, B6, A, and potassium that already exist in quite good values inside potatoes we can actually help to target those to be increased. Again, using hybrid breeding that's completely GMO-free. That's really interesting. I thank you for this explanation. Then another question I wanted to ask you is, how have small farmers and communities in need in developing countries benefited so far from your innovations? My earlier example, I, I talked about, uh, you know, creating a supply of starting material for the farmers and also creating more focused products that fit their needs. But here, you know, I, I think I'd like to give you an example of a, a lady in Kenya. This lady has been a farmer most of her life. She happens to be about an hour outside of Nairobi. So she has a unique opportunity for, to provide vegetables, not only for her and her family, But uh, when, the need or, when the opportunity arises, 
to markets around her community. And years ago, she grew potatoes, but she always achieved low yields, largely because of a disease that I mentioned earlier called late blight. Late blight is a fungus. And when the rains came in, this fungus started to grow on her potatoes. And ultimately, every time she tried, it killed the crop. And as a result, for many years now, she hasn't grown potatoes. Yet this year, potato prices in Kenya are so high that she uh, saw the opportunity to grow potatoes. And she came to Salenta and she says, do you have anything that will not die from this disease? And we said, well, we do have some new hybrids uh, that, that were we're still working on, but uh, we believe they're resistant to uh, late blight. And if you would like to test them, else please feel free to test them. And we think that it would solve your problem. She did. And those potatoes have grown through the year. They have not been inf infected by light. And just in two weeks, she'll be harvesting her crop. It's the first time that she's been able to harvest a potato crop at its maturity since she's been farming. And she is so excited that there is now the opportunity for her to add potatoes to her farm, not only to feed her family, but as a cash crop. And I think this would not have been able to be accomplished without hybrids. Fine. Wow. It's impressing, really. Uh, she makes the, the size crop that she's looking for, but uh, we stay in contact regularly over WhatsApp with sending me pictures, and, and the crop does look really good, and she's super excited. That's great. And finally, the last question. In episode 44, we are focusing on the water issues and climate change impacts facing farmers. How does your hybrid potatoes help them adapt? Yeah, that's a really good question again. And, you know, potatoes, contrary to popular belief, are actually a very water-friendly crop. Roughly speaking, 70% of water used every year goes to agriculture. And if we're going to see the population grow as we expect in the coming decades and we see the climate change, then the amount of water that's available for agriculture has to change. To me, that means that we have to change how we farm and what we farm. Potatoes and our hybrid potatoes as well use about 40% the required water to produce the same volume of food as rice or as made. So from my point of view, potatoes in general, and specifically our hybrid potatoes, are a really good way to help farmers reduce the amount of water that they use to produce sustainable and nutritional food. That was Charles Miller of Salenta talking to our reporter, Norbona. You can find out more about Solenta by going to www.solenta.com. Coming up, we're kicking the ball firmly towards Italian football and why they're joining forces with EFAD. This is Farms Food Future. I'm Brian Thompson with Michelle Tang. Mauro Balatta is president of Italy's second division in football, known here as the Liga Serie B. Our reporter, Nord Bonner, met up with him to talk about how relevant rural development is and, more importantly, to find out why this professional football league has decided to support IFAD's work with rural communities. This is because the Liga Serie B has always been a league that has been oriented towards a very structured, very determined activity of assuming responsibility and social responsibility. And therefore, in our opinion, this partnership, of which we are extremely proud, represents with great clarity that we, as a league, as our clubs, our world, of course, which is a sporting world in the world of football, 
is one that has great capacity to spread its values and its thoughts. And so we really want to make our socially responsible vision clear. Perfect, thank you. And I wanted to ask you something more personal. That is, do you have ties with rural communities? I have ties from an Italian citizen perspective. I come from a region where agriculture is also extremely developed. I have many friends who work in that sector. I know how important the sector is not only for the present, but also for the future of our country. How important is it to sustainably develop the way we grow food? It is absolutely strategic, not just important. It is a vision that we share. It is a vision that IFED is pursuing with great resources, with great will, helping all those who are rural populations also to innovate processes in the agricultural sector and also meeting those that are the needs clearly represented by the 2030 Agenda. In short, we believe that the principles, values and activities carried out by IFAD are fundamental because they are directed not only at developing and helping the poorest populations and those living in rural areas, but they are also aimed at inclusion. For example, helping women who work in agriculture, who are an increasingly active and fundamental part of that economy, but above all, it's geared towards younger people who are an important, a very important and qualified segment of the world's population. And they are helped to develop a strategy in agriculture that is sustainable and compatible with the needs of the planet and of the environment. And finally, one last question. Would you like to give your message to governments about climate change and feeding the world? We send the message through this extraordinary partnership and through this extraordinary body that is an agency of the United Nations. I believe that helping, supporting and following IFAD is, as it were, an objective that all governments and all of us must set ourselves, because they are just objectives that meet the current needs of the planet and the current needs of young people and women. I believe that the strategy put in place by IFAD, which is to go and help people in their countries, communities and territorial areas where these people reside, is also a formidable strategic tool to meet the needs of those who, at times, especially the youngest, are forced to migrate to seek their fortune elsewhere. I believe that helping these populations to develop to grow in terms of income, food production and wealth, to be more resilient and more self-sufficient, is something extraordinary that must be constantly supported and strengthened with conviction. Let me conclude with a very small phrase in English, but which contains the word goal. Let's go to goals with IFAD Ben. Greetings also to all of you, to President Lario, with whom we have been together just to promote and sponsor this partnership. I want to thank him, as I want to thank all of you for identifying and choosing CDB as a strategic partner in this wonderful action that you're bringing forward. Thanks to Noah for that report, and that brings us to the end of episode 44 
Many thanks, as always, to our top-notch striker, our producer here in Rome, the one and only Francesco Manetti. Also to the rest of the team at Farms Food Future, playing a great game with three goals to her name, Noor Bonner, and a striking performance in Nairobi from Michelle Makena Mwimbi. And not to be forgotten, our top scorer of the season, Michelle Tang. We couldn't do it without you. Do you see what I'm doing with the football references? Should I stop, Michelle? <laughs> Foul, yellow card, red card. Yes, we need to stop the soccer chatter for now. But most of all, thanks to you in the stands for listening to this episode of Farms Food Future, brought to you by the International Fund for Agricultural Development. You can find out more about any of these stories at www.efad.org forward slash podcast. Next month's episode 45, we're heading off to take a look at small island developing states or SIDS to learn more about the impacts there of climate change on food security. Our mini-series with the Global Donor Platform for Rural Development continues next month. The Donor Platform Secretariat is hosted by EFAD and brings forth influential voices from the donor community. Remember, we want to hear from you. What do you think about our stories and the issues discussed, and who do you want us to be talking to? So please get in touch at podcast at efad.org. And send us your voice or text messages to that address, and we'll be happy to play you out in the next show. Also, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast via your favorite podcast platform, and please rate us. We'll be back at the end of June with more news fresh from the farm. And once again, we'll be trying to be good for you, good for the planet, and good for the farmers. Until then, from me, Brian Thompson. And from me, Michelle Tang, and the team here at EFAD. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.